الحمد لله وكفى وسلام على عباده الذين اصطفى أما بعد فأعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم ومن دخله كان آمنا سبحان ربك رب العزة عما يصفون وسلام على المرسلين الحمد لله رب العالمين اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد وعلى آل سيدنا محمد وبارك وسلم اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد وعلى آل سيدنا محمد وبارك وسلم اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد وعلى آل سيدنا محمد وبارك وسلم We know that with the passing of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam that as we move further away from that passing the more the fitan or the fitnas of the world will spread uh, you know at the time of the Prophet sallallahu there were places, or you can even say for the century or two after, there were many places where one could find spiritual sanctuary, where they could feel protection from losing or having their iman challenged. Um, but as we move further and further away from that time, there are very, very few places in which this still can occur. Now one place in which there is essentially, you can say, a statement slash promise from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that iman, the iman of people will be preserved and protected are the haramain in Makkah Mukarramah and Medina Munawwara. Uh, in one place in the Quran, Allah ta'ala says, وَمَنْ دَخَلَهُ كَانَ آمِنًا right? He's, This is Allah ta'ala's statement that whoever enters it, ever enters a sacred sanctuary, you can say, that that person is in a state of uh, protection. They're in a state of protection. Now, we, there's very few places that we can make that statement. Here, for instance, right? I mean, where could we say that this is a place of sanctuary and protection? Now, what's amazing about that place is there's different types of protection that it offers. It offers physical protection, right? So we know that anyone that enters into that space is not allowed to harm any person whatsoever. Not only are they not allowed to harm another person, we aren't even allowed to touch or harm a plant, right? In fact, if you know, in the haram, if you look today, if they have to move a tree from one place to another, over here you would just chop the tree down and move on. But over there, because this is a place of safety for not just human beings, and not just animals, but even plants, those, those trees are actually dug from their roots and transplanted elsewhere because harm cannot be brought even to that. If a person's in a state of ihram and they're in that space, for instance, you can't um, kill an animal, right? I mean, these things that are otherwise permissible, they're granted safety in this particular place. And it's important in this day and age because we are living at a time in which there is a threat to our iman everywhere we look. There is a threat to our iman everywhere we look. You know, any direction, any which way we turn, there's a possibility that our iman is going to be challenged, and it is challenged. But what's amazing about that space, if anyone's visited, they realize immediately that once you enter into the Haramain, in, you know, either of the Haram, either one of the two, but when you enter into the Haramain, let's, just, let's keep this simple. Once you enter into Makkah Mukarramah and you're in the Haram boundaries, for some reason or another, all the worries of the world just disappear. Right? You know, many people, when someone's going for Umrah or Hajj, uh, they'll be said, hey, can you make the offer me? And can you make the offer me? And all these people will request that you make the offer them. And unless a person actually literally writes down those du'as, when, when an individual gets there and it's time to remember who asked me to make du'a, all of those, those memories are completely gone. Because once you're in that space, literally the entire world disappears. 
It's a very, very special place that Allah Ta'ala has told us is a sp- place of spiritual sanctuary. It's a place where people can come either having lost Iman uh, and then wanting to rejuvenate it simply by entering, that happens. For a person who has noticed that their Iman is weakening or the Iman of their children is weakening, they can enter into that space, become f- fully recharged and return. You know, there are people, there's a, there's a long story that one of our teachers mentions, and I, I don't have the time to go into detail, but they were basically uh, not Muslim, but they happened to be working in Jeddah on some project. Right? It was a couple. And at the time, and even really even today, we, what, a person cannot visit Makkah Mukarramah and see the Kaaba unless they're Muslim. This is, these are the rules that they have. And somehow they had figured out a way to put on ihram and, and look like Muslims because they just wanted to see what this was about. And when they finally laid eyes upon the Kaaba, and it's a long story, it's a true story, you know, this, this is a family, a couple from the United States actually. Uh, when they finally laid eyes on the Kaaba, the husband and wife looked at each other, and one of them said to the other that, you know, what do you think about this place? And the other person said, this looks like the truth. And so the response from the husband, I think, was, well, if this is the truth, why don't we just accept this? Simply the gaze of the Kaaba was so powerful upon this couple that just simply by looking at it, by looking at it, they accepted Islam. Just by looking at the Kaaba, that's it. Because it's such a powerful place of spiritual rejuvenation. There is no place like it today in the world. There was never a place like it before, and there will never be a place like it until the Day of Judgment. This is a place that's protected from now until the Day of Judgment. Right? We know that, for instance, that the Jal can't enter into these sacred spaces. That's a big deal. Because at the time of the fitna of the Jal, when the Jal will be able to affect and have an impact on literally every corner of the globe, right? this is a space that the Jal has no ability to even enter. That's incredible. That's incredible. Um, and because Allah Ta'ala promised us to be a place of spiritual safety, a person, when they enter into the sanctuary... There's this aman that comes upon them that one, the world disappears, and two, this mindset of honestly, whatever happens to me, happens to me here. It doesn't matter. Because I know that I'm in this place, and if Allah Ta'ala were to even take my life away, I'm in this place of safety that even, inshallah, I will be protected from the difficulties of the hereafter as well. Now, this is a very lengthy discussion, and I hope over the next couple of mahfils to sort of touch upon the haramain and its importance in our lives, because I think that it's it's really important to remind ourselves every so often about, about how beneficial it is for us because I think we lose, we lose a, a heat of it. Um, what's even more amazing is you meet people over time that uh, the struggle, let me put it this way. You know, for us, we look for excuses not to go visit the Haramain, to visit Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's home, right? We look for many excuses, be it cost, Maybe it's the difficulty of travel. Maybe it's responsibilities that we have, etc., etc., etc. We have a lot of different things that shaitan puts in our mind that make it difficult. Um, but when we learn about people who have visited that place or people that live there and their desire to stay there is incredible. The sacrifices they have to make just to be there with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You know, um, there's a famous story. Not famous story. There's a story. Well, let me, let me backtrack. So recently I had the chance to visit, alhamdulillah. And... Um, you know, after we had completed our Umrah, I had uh, completed the Umrah. We, you know, I went to the the barber, the the salon, the saloon, right? They call it the saloon to get their head, the head trimmed or shaved. And so, you know, I sat down on the chair, and the um, the barber he uh, asked me who I was and where I was from and what my name was, etc. So we started talking a little bit while he was shaving the hair. 
And uh, I, know I asked him where he's from, and he had said he was from Pakistan. So I said, oh, okay, you know, how long have you been here? And he's like, you know, he'd been here for many years. Uh, I said, oh, okay, where's your family? Right, where's your family? So he said, my family, you know, I think he had two children and uh, his wife. And he said, though, they're, they're all back in Pakistan. I'm the one that's here, basically. I was like, oh, how often do you see them? So he's like, you know, I see them, you know, every six months I usually go. And if I go, I'll usually spend about three or four weeks with them. And then I come back. And this is pretty routine over there, right? In fact, many, in fact, even going every six months is a big deal. For some people, it's, you know, once a year or once every two years that they can afford the ticket to actually fly back to their home country. The, a lot of the laborers that are there. So, you know, I, and I knew that the financial situation, the economic situation isn't great right now with the pandemic. I mean, people aren't really making money. And over there... I mean, it, it's very sad to see that there's so much disruption to the local economy, especially, uh, you can say, the working class, especially the foreigners, that a lot have just had to travel back to their home countries. There's just no work. So this person was still there, and I was thinking, like, how, how would he still be here? I mean, amidst, you know, basically very little income coming, et cetera. And not only that, you know, I'm thinking, like, who can be separated from their family for that long? Um, so I asked him, I said, you know, uh, is there not any work for you to do back, back home? Um, he said, no, you know, I figured I would work here a few more years and then I'll, I'll go back home. And then I said, what are you going to do back home? He said, probably the same thing. You know, he's a barber and he's very skilled and he knows what he's doing. And I guess there's a little bit of a market for that. So, and then I asked him, I said, well, but why, why don't you just go now? What are you doing here? Like, you might as well go back to your country or look for opportunities elsewhere. I mean, there's economic opportunities everywhere. So he said, he said to me, and it's just striking, he said, you know, um, I'd rather just be here right now. So what do you mean? So he said, you know, Allah Ta'ala has given me this opportunity to be this close to his home. And I know that I'm probably not going to get this opportunity again in my life. So I figured that maybe I'll just stay here for a few years and do exactly what I'm doing. Very simple life, makes a little bit of money, sends it back home, visits family every now and then. Uh, and he's like, I just want to be here with Allah. And I just want to be here serving the people that come and visit Allah because I might not get this opportunity later. And it blew my mind away because I'm thinking, wow, like he, it's not, there are some people who are there who are forced to be there. They don't have any opportunity, any option to go elsewhere. This person is willing to sacrifice his everything and his family and his children and his own, you could say, personal desires, right? Why? So that he can be there to serve Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's creation and be close to the home of Allah ta'ala for the period of time, for, for a period of time. Right? And, and, put it in, and so I thought, like, subhanAllah, this is the attachment that this person has to this space. And, you know, we're living in, like, the comforts and luxuries. We live more the, better than 95% of the world is living, 99% arguably. And yet we'll think 14 times over if we're going to visit the house of Allah Ta'ala. And we're going with our families. And if we're having to leave our families just for a few days, maybe a week, maybe two weeks, maybe once every few years just to perform hajj or perform umrah, and this person is continuously separated from his family, and, having, and, and, and the sacrifice isn't just his, it's also his family's sacrifice. And he's doing this, why? Simply because he sees this opportunity that Allah has given him, this window, and he doesn't want this window, he, he's afraid this window will never open up for him again, and he's prolonging it as much as possible. As much as possible. And if you see the conditions these people live in, I mean, it's just shocking that this is someone's choice, this is not by force. This is someone's sacrifice. This is not. This is not. Um, this is not uh, slavery, right? Incredible. You know, there's a story. There's many stories like this, right? Of people that have fallen, that that, that are settled there, and they just can't leave that place. You know, um, 
higher up from one of our teachers, Sheikh Ghulam Habib, rahimahullah. He's you know a very famous scholar um, from from many years ago. He did uh, I think Hajj, maybe it was Umrah, I don't remember. This was you know maybe 70, 80 years ago. And when he went to Makkah Mukarramah, he went with his wife. And by the back, by the way, back then, maybe we'll talk about this in a subsequent talk. The the actual travel of Umrah was very different than it is today or Hajj. Right now, you could basically get door to door in 24 hours, and if you're lucky, maybe 18 hours. Right, door to door from the door of your house to the door of the Kaaba, for instance, or the door of Masjid Nabawi. But back then, it would take several months to get to where you needed to go, and we'll talk about that maybe different a different time. Eventually, he had made the journey, probably I think by ship, uh, to Makkah Mukarramah. And he, had, when you go there, they would spend several weeks there. So while he was there with his wife, and they had to take like their little, um, you could say, tip, uh, little. Um, uh, food, they take their food packaging with them, so they'd have like a little like, charcoal or some sort of a cook, uh, some sort of a um, a flame to be able to cook food. They'd have like wheat with them, a little bit of rice, and they would make food. You know, while they're there, there was you didn't have you know uh, all these amenities like Hardee's and McDonald's and Five Guys, and, and none of these things were available back then, right? And even if they were, most people couldn't afford it. So you'd take your own little packaged stuff and you would basically cook it there. So they met this young boy that was from Makkah Mukarramah, and this young boy. Uh, I don't think he was an orphan, but he was a young boy that lived there. And he started coming and they would see him in front of the Kaaba and in the Mataf and outside the Masjid. And they would develop a very close relationship. He would come sit with, you know, Sheikh Ulam Habib's his wife. And he would sit with her and ask her all these questions. And, you know, uh, he would eat with them. And then every single day they were just constantly were interacting with this young son. And he was started asking them, young boy, he started asking them, uh, you know, uh, what about, what, what, what's it like? And they were originally from Pakistan. So he's like, what, what are things like back where you are? So they're describing to him that it's like this and it's so beautiful and you have this kind of food and this kind of clothing and these kinds of you know, amenities and just trying to describe to him. Um, and they said, you know, do, you wanna, do you want to come back with us? Right? Do you want to come back with us? You can enjoy. Because back then, Makkah Mukarramah, one, is a desert, still is. And number two, the poverty, you know, we're talking like six, seven years ago, right? Really, things haven't things changed in the last 30, 40 years. 60, 70 years ago, or 100 years ago, it was one of the poorest countries you would ever visit. You wouldn't even think about going there because it's so poor, unless you had a desire for Hajj. There wasn't five-star hotels. There weren't even one-star hotels. It was, uh, it was such a difficult lifestyle with extreme, extreme, extreme poverty, right, that it was very difficult to live there. So they offered, why don't you come back with us? And so uh, he asked them all these questions, do they, and, then, and then he eventually asked, and he pointed toward the Kaaba and he said, uh, is, is Baytullah also there where you are? Is the house of Allah also where you are? So the, I think his wife said, no, there's, Baytullah is not there. So he said, oh, okay. If Baytullah is not there, then I'm not interested in coming. I'm not interested. I'd rather be here, uh, you know, just live my simple life amidst the poverty and the difficulty. So be it. But I, this is the house of Allah and I can't leave the house of Allah. You know, there's many, 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 many stories like this, right? And it's just a reminder for us, especially those of us, you know, all of us really, we, we live in such a comfortable circumstance, but we live in such, a, in such a dire circumstance as well. We have all the amenities and the comforts of this world, uh, really anything that anyone can possibly imagine, uh, but spiritually, uh, we, we don't have what that space has to offer. We don't have what that space has to offer. 
It serves as a rejuvenation for us and our families. It serves as an opportunity for us to replenish our iman. It serves as an opportunity for us to come back as a completely forgiven servant of Allah. I mean, there's just so much benefit. And in this day and age in particular, where, where we are seeing before our very eyes people that come to the masjid, right, and that are regular practicing Muslims, wake up in the morning in a state of iman and go to bed having lost their iman. You know, how many parents have come to me over the years and have asked about what can be done about their child who they thought was, you know, practicing or on deen and is now questioning the basic tenets of deen. There's just, the, 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 we're, living, we're living in that sort of a circumstance. So it becomes all the more important to have this deep desire to visit the haramain. Visit it often, take our families to visit it, and, and, uh, and have some attachment. Now, we recognize that not everyone has the ability to go. Not everyone has the means to go. Not everyone has the, you can say, time off of school or of work to be able to go. Not everyone has the help to be able to go. But that doesn't preclude us from at least having a desire and a dua in our heart that Allah Ta'ala invite us to the home. Right? That, and that's, I think, the point of this whole discussion. It's not that I need to be there. It's that, Ya Allah, uh, please invite me there. Right? Like, that should be something that we're constantly thinking about. It should be constant uh, dua that's on our lips. And it should be a deep burning desire within our heart that Allah Ta'ala allow us to return to the haramain as much as possible. Look, you know, my teacher says this really well. We, we know that the Prophet Sallallahu said in a hadith, that, uh, that whoever visits me after, whoever visits my grave after I pass away, it is as if they are visiting me while I'm alive. Whoever is visiting me after I pass away, meaning my grave, after I pass away, it is as if they have visited me while I was alive. Now, if I was to ask you, if the Prophet were alive today, were alive and awake in Medina Munawwara, would we not go and visit him? Right? Would we not go and visit him? Like, we, we, 100% we would visit him. And we would take our families and we would tell everyone, look, there's a Prophet of Allah there. And this Prophet of Allah, people when he was alive would come in their company and become Sahaba. Become Sahaba. Right? People's lives would completely flip just by coming in his presence 1400 years ago. So most certainly if he was alive today, we would go visit him. And there's no difference between whether he's alive or he's dead, essentially. The Prophet is saying that it's as if you have visited me while I was alive. Most certainly we would visit him. So why is it that we don't have this desire to visit the Prophet in our heart? Like regularly be thinking like, Ya Allah, when can I go visit your Messenger When can I go convey my salam and my greeting and, and X, Y, and Z to the Prophet So, you know, there, there's just so much to consider. But, it's, but I think the take-home point from today uh, isn't that, you know, we should all just, you know, not make arrangements and just suddenly just, you know, think that you know, if I don't go, it's the end of the world. But I think that the take-home is that we need to, within our own hearts and in our own, in our own du'as, um, really have this yearning and desire to, to visit the house of Allah Ta'ala and visit the Prophet Sallallahu And, you know, as long as this desire remains in the heart, number one, Allah Ta'ala will invite us. And number two, it, it, it's, a, it's a good sign for the community. It's a sign that Allah Ta'ala has blessed us with the, tawfiq to, with the tawfiq to have a desire to visit the Haramain. And believe it or not, in this day and age, it's very, very, very rare. Very rare. You know, and I'll close with this one story. There's one story uh, of a couple, and I'm, I'm not mentioning names obviously, but these are, these are real people. A couple who had, uh, you know, because they're from America, and they had gone to the Haram to, for Hajj. They were going for Hajj. And... Uh, 
what happened was that you know they went in some you know VIP type package or something like that, and that means that you basically get a very lush posh hotel and you get full service in Arafah and Mina and etc cetera, etc. Cetera. So they uh, had gone, and the entire time they were complaining about every little thing that was there. You know, the food didn't taste right, the bed wasn't soft enough, the car didn't have enough air conditioning, just constantly complaining and complaining and complaining. Uh, to the point where it seemed like they were just upset with the hosting of Allah Ta'ala while there. And so while they were there, the husband had become ill. And so they had no choice. It was either a heart attack or something similar. And they said they had to take him to the hospital. So they uh, took him to the local hospital and his wife went with them. And the days of Hajj were approaching. It wasn't yet Arafah, which is what Hajj is. Uh, essentially, so while they were in the hospital, it was it was um, they couldn't just discharge him. So what they offered uh, was they told him and his wife that you know what uh, we have a service uh, that they do for anyone who's hospitalized. In fact, they said to him that if you'd like, uh, we will transport you by helicopter by a medical helicopter. There'll be a medical team with you, and we'll take the helicopter and have it land in the plain of Arafah, and 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 then we'll bring you back. And we know that Prophet ﷺ said, which means that if a person spends, essentially what it means is if you spend a moment in Arafah on the uh, 9th of the Hijjah, that that's your Hajj. It's the bare bones Hajj, but that's Hajj. Bare bones. So at least your obligation of your lifetime Hajj has now been fulfilled. So, I mean, who wouldn't take that opportunity? And it's incredible the service they offer. You know, I, I've heard this because I know even physicians that uh, have worked with or that are low, that um, do procedures and intensivists that are in, in the haram, in that area. And I know they do very, you know, like uh, incredible things to try to get people that have visited for Hajj to get to Harafah on that day. People will be, you know, ICU patients and they will transport them fully with critical care support team, have them come to Harafah and take them back because this, this person, you know, waited their whole life to make their Hajj and how could it be that they'd go back without it? So, anyways, uh, and the point of the story is to just highlight tawfiq and this yearning and, and the desire in the heart. So they asked, and then the, 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 the person said, the guy said, the husband said, no, I don't want to go. They said, why don't you want to go? This, and by the way, this is a paid-for service. You're not getting a $50,000 hospital bill or a $25,000 EMS bill, right, like we might get over here. This is fully play, paid by the government there. Fully, 100% at a penny comes out of your pocket if you go and you become ill at Hajj. So he said, I don't want to go. So why not? He said, I came all the way here, and if this is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to do and make me sick, then I'm not interested in going for Hajj now. So then they asked his wife, okay, he doesn't want to go, fine. We'll take you at least. She said, no, if he's not going, I'm not going either. I'm not going either. Right? So, uh, I mean, so, so they ended up not fulfilled. And there's many stories actually like this. You know? so, so we never really know what situation we, we find ourselves in. We should have a deep desire and a deep yearning in our heart to visit the Haramain. We should have uh, an intention at all times that Allah Ta'ala please invite us and, and that He allow us to, to visit this space frequently and abundantly and allow us to take our families as well. So inshallah, I'll try over the next um, couple of gatherings to sort of um, just share similar reminders of, of, uh, of this. Uh, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us a tawfiq to appreciate uh, the value of the sacred spaces. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect us and our families from difficulties in this life and the hereafter. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, allow within our hearts to grow a deep love and yearning and desire for the Haramain Sharifain. Wa akhiru da'wana alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen.